This is episode 5 of our CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. This episode concludes the 2004 Annual Enrichment Conference titled Together in His Presence, Beholding the Wonder of the Trinity with Speaker Bruce Ware. Here is session 6, The Final Challenge. Well, good morning. We're going to land this ship, all right? We're going to try to, to tie together a number of things that, uh, excuse me, that I hope uh, will bring some uh, clarity to some of the things that uh, we have tried to put forth in seed form uh, throughout this conference together. Uh, for some of you, uh, you are beginning to uh, see a picture unfold before you and are, are starting to get it. For others, it's like, I don't quite see where you guys are going yet. Um, uh, is CB Northwest God the Father? Is, uh, uh, you know, is who, who is what in, in this scheme of things, okay? Uh, we can be clear. We are not God the Father, okay? Um, and uh, we may be a long ways from representing that picture. Our job at CB Northwest is very simple. That is to serve the church. The local church is God's chosen vehicle for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, not CB Northwest. Our job is to bring God's churches into a right relationship with one another so that they together might express correctly who our God is in unity, oneness, and wholeness. So as we work together at trying to facilitate interconnection, community of churches, we believe that that gives our world, a view of the family of God that they can get in no other way. When they see us as independent churches doing our own thing, we have a measure of success. But it does not carry the kind of impact that we have when our churches who are healthy and successful are seen as one and therefore are seen as a part of a global family of God. My wife and I uh, have had the privilege of, um, of a large family. We have five children. Uh, four of those children are adopted. Three of those children came uh, relatively early in our marriage. Uh, Janelle and I basically were a family on the road for most of our life. We got married right out of high school. We did our undergraduate work and our graduate work together as a married couple. And uh, we would lead ministry teams in the summer and uh, led the ministry that used to be called MOP and now is Delta Ministry. And, 
And uh, so we would have kids in and out of our home and in our life all the time. So we were just kind of this, um, this rolling family, depending upon where the teams took us. You saw Glenn Small up here on the screen. Glenn was on one of our teams to Alaska. In fact, he is the author of a very famous uh, uh, vacation Bible school set called Captain Christian Wright. And so if you want to know about Captain Christian Wright, Glenn Small is the one. He's the author of great characters like Lance Sinalot <laughs> and Luke Warm, his faithful assistant. <laughs> that was birthed on the Alcan Highway when a semi-truck shot a rock through the front grill of our van and blew up our water pump and we were stranded on the Alcan Highway for four days. And there was the, the brainchild of Captain Christian Wright that became a famous vacation Bible school opening program. And, uh, uh, and the, uh, anyway, it's not a trilogy, it's not a movie yet, but it's close, okay? <laughs> But anyway, as, as Janelle and I have had the privilege of taking teams and, and ministering on the road as a couple, God brought into our lives these children who we had the privilege of adopting. One of the reasons uh, that uh, we were in the adoption business, if you will, in creating family is after a number of years of not being able to have children, you kind of just give up, amen? You know what I mean? Well, after 15 years, Janelle was having some difficulties. She went in for uh, some, uh, some surgery, and she came out of that surgery, and wouldn't you know, and just a few months later, guess what? She was pregnant. We, who were kind of this unhealthy couple, God, through the, the beauty of medicine, changed some things around inside of her, and uh, she loves it when I talk like this. <laughs> This, this is going to cost me dinner somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, maybe two. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and God created this little window of opportunity, and uh, Janelle was able to, to become pregnant. After 15 years of marriage, Janelle got to just about the birth point. And uh, we came home from church on a Sunday uh, Sunday morning, and I had preached, and it was really good. And uh, <laughs> as we came into our driveway, we live on a ranch. We had a ranch there in eastern Oregon. My folks still live on the ranch. And uh, uh, we came in, and we pulled into the carport, and I looked over on the grass, and there was my stock dog laying there and didn't come up to the car. And we knew that that wasn't normal. And so I looked over, and the front door of the house was open. And I said to my son, Chris, I said, Chris, go in the house and see what happened. <laughs> well, my son had a bummer calf, and, and he would start feeding that calf out in the barn, and then he got tired of feeding it on the barn, so he would whistle, and the calf would come to the back porch, and he would feed it on the back porch. And then he got tired of feeding it on the back porch, so he'd just open the back door and stick the bottle out the back door and feed the calf right out the back door of the house. Well, the calf then decided that the best way to get fed was to come up and start sucking on the doorknob of the house. <laughs> well, one Sunday while we were at church and I preached really well, <laughs> that calf decided it was hungry and it started sucking on the doorknob of our house. And as it sucked on the doorknob of our house, lo and behold, guess what? The door opened. 
So the calf decided to go into the house and, and see what's there. So as the calf started walking around our house, our stock dog said, no, there's something wrong with this picture. This calf does not belong in the house. I am going to herd it out. So our stock dog went into the house and started to herd our calf, but the calf forgot where the door was. And so it went through the living room and knocked all of our plants off, jumped across the couch, left some of that green gold throughout the living room, <laughs> went into my wife's bedroom. The stock dog must have got tired and took a break because the calf had sucked on all of my wife's clothes in the closet. <laughs> then the dog got excited again and chased the calf across our bed and left some more of that stuff and into the, into the kitchen. And uh, then finally, Somehow the calf got out of the house, and somehow the stock dog goes, oh, you know what, that wasn't a very good idea. <laughs> Chris, go in the house and see what happened. So my son gets out of the truck, and he runs into the house. He looks in the house. He sticks his head out the front door, and he goes. <laughs> Janelle walked in. And 14 hours later, we had Mary Ellen. <laughs> you know, sometimes family's incredibly messy. You know, sometimes coming together as a family, you don't know when you're going to have kids because of health problems. You don't know when you're pregnant what it is that's going to cause this thing to birth. You know, sometimes we don't even know what kids it is that God's going to give to us. Who is it that's going to affiliate with our family? Who is it that's going to say, I want this to be a part of our family? Many years ago, Janelle and I realized a couple of principles. And the first principle was that uh, it wasn't up to us who was going to be our offspring. It was going to be determined by God. We learned a long time ago by good modeling from good parents that the most important thing you could do is to create a healthy home so that when God did give you children, not only would they have an identity that would be uniquely your family's identity, but that we would then be able to identify them as the gift from God, who we get to steward for a period of time for the purpose of sending them out to be an example of us to the next generation. We named Mary Ellen, Mary Ellen Joy Hafner. She is a Hafner. There is no question about that. She is just like her mother. <clears throat> and all God's people said, amen. But she though she carries us, she is uniquely Mary Ellen. She is her own person. 
and yet she is a part of my loins. She is a part of me. She is not me, but she represents me. Because she's a part of our family. The most difficult thing for me as your general director over these four years has been trying to determine, are we really a family? In other words, if you take what constitutes a family, can you really call the conservative Baptists a family? I've wrestled with that question for a number of years because there are many things that we do and say when we use the family language. But yet when it comes down to that which causes us to have an identity that says, ah, that is the family. We can't define it. In other words, I have met with Pastors, elders, association leaders, and ask them to describe our identity. Help me to understand how you see us as conservative Baptists. And everyone gives me an answer, but when you lay all the answers out upon the table, they are all so different that it becomes very difficult to be able to discern are we family or not? In other words, we have lots of children, lots of churches around the Northwest and around the world. And we carry a label called conservative Baptist, at least in a layer somewhere in our documents. And yet, it becomes very difficult to be able to articulate what is the identity of the family. I don't know about you, but as a parent, the last thing I want for my kids is to question their identity. I want my children to know exactly what it means to be a Hafner what it means to be a part of this family, what this family believes, what this family stands for, and what I expect my children to pass on to their children. I like farmers. I love ranching. One of the greatest joys of my life was pastoring a church in a rural community called Prairie City and, uh, and being able to ranch. Nothing better than going out and punching cows for Jesus. It's a great thing to do. There was another herdsman, a tender of flocks, one who shepherded the sheep, and his name was Amos. And Amos was a man who God chose to go to the king's sanctuary, to the temple of the king, and to prophesy. The king wasn't real hip 
on this country boy coming and giving him the word of the Lord. And so he told him to go back to his farming, to go back to his sycamore trees, to go back to tending his flocks. But God told him to go and to prophesy to his people, Israel. And in chapter 8 of Amos, we have these words. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he said. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Then he begins to unfold what God had showed him. And when you go over to verse 11 of Amos chapter 8, it says this. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and the strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Bathsheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. How would you like the Lord to speak that one to you? I believe that we are at a crossroads as conservative Baptists. I believe that the lack of definition of identity has led us into a hole to where we do not know what it is that we are to pass on. We don't know our identity. Therefore, we can't identify those whom we are going to pass the identity to. In other words, churches are not strategizing how to reproduce churches. Pastors are not looking to the next generation and saying, there is a young man that God has put a call on his life. I am going to pour my life into him. I am going to be a pastor who reproduces the next generation of pastors. We do not have elders who are taking and saying, around our table, in our eldering team, there sits behind us a gallery of young men who are learning how to become the fathers of the family. How many elders do you know who have in their hip pocket the next generation man who is going to step up into the leadership of that church? 
our men's ministries. How many in our men's ministries are identifying those young men who are coming up through their junior high and high school departments who are going to become fathers and leaders and businessmen. They are going to uh, lead families and take on responsibilities for the next generation. How many of our men's ministries' whole pursuit is to identify the next generation and to pour into them? What compels us to do such a thing? A right understanding of family. A right understanding of what our identity is. And where does it start? It starts with right doctrine. It starts with a God-centeredness because that's where we find our true identity. That's where we know whose family we belong to. You and I have a father and he is in heaven, and his name is to be reverenced, and he has a will, and he desires that that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father wants to be the one who is the architect of the family, and therefore he has given us a perfect understanding of what it is he wants by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore he has said he is going to build his church under the headship of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore the whole family receives a name, Ephesians tells us. And that name is what we must perpetuate throughout our world. Doctrine matters. As I think about CB Northwest and I think about the pursuit that we're on, the days from my perspective are probably um, some of the most frightening days I've ever entered into in leadership. We have an incredible starting point of doctrine. We are not devoid of good doctrine pulling it together in a way that says these are primary doctrines that all conservative Baptists for all times must always believe. And those secondary doctrines that says your church had better have a teaching position here because this brings to us a family of information that helps shape your house. And those tertiary level doctrines, we must identify them and understand them that even though we may not understand how they totally unfold, they cause us to say, what an awesome God we serve. His ways are higher than my ways. Leading our family through our trustees with input from our churches to define those primary doctrines that I can make a promise to stand there is going to be a tough year. But where else can we go? Where else can we go? When it comes to being historically shaped, when it comes to defining polity, 
we have a good starting point. The Bible is just rich in helping us understand a biblical polity that leads us to structure ourselves as a family. I don't know about you, but our family is a little weird. You can't have five kids and be the general director that travels through four states and not have a weird family. My daughter is back in the child care, and some of the other kids who are working in child care asked her some questions about our family. And basically, my daughter at lunch yesterday, she says, Dad, you know, we're really weird. And I said, yeah, we get that from your mom's side. <laughs> But in other words, our house is going to do it different than your house. Because our context is different than your context. But that doesn't mean that there aren't those foundational things that help us to structure our homes in a way that says, my home can be connected to your home. And your home can be connected to your brother's and sister's home. Even though within our house we do some things a little different because of who we are. Gifts, talents, and abilities. Because of the cultural context in which we find ourselves. And because of the way we have been shaped by our circumstances as God has developed us through time and history. And so we have to look to Jesus to pull all the diversity that is represented in the family into unity. And to celebrate the fact that our identity is not that all of our houses look the same. But our identity is that the foundation to our houses is the same. Polity. Why does this next year put forth the greatest challenge for me and my role? It's because we have a tendency to fight. And the last thing I want to do in our family is lead a fight. I want us to find the mind of Christ and to agree there. And that might get a little difficult because, you know, there are a few of you who are a little opinionated <laughs> on certain issues and helping to take the diversity of this family and find some common ground this year is not going to be an easy task. But where else can we go? Philosophy of ministry. That's where I get to just go, thank you, Jesus. Because that's kind of where we began four years ago. When we look at the philosophy of ministry, being missionally driven, our trustee board has worked hard in that area, and we have a vision for the Northwest. We have a mission in the Northwest, and we have values that guide us in the decision-making in the Northwest. Let me give you one example. CB Northwest has strategically realigned itself to focus on supporting leadership. We don't try to bring helps to your congregants, to the members of your church. That's your job. Our job is to help leaders get healthy. And so therefore we have strategically done everything to refocus ourselves 
on helping pastors get healthy, helping elders get healthy, helping them get their structures healthy so that they might minister to their congregates in the community in which they reside. So being missionally driven, helping leadership become healthy so that your churches can fulfill the Great Commission, that is our greatest joy. And I believe we have common ground there. Those three things become foundational for what I would call the promise of family. It becomes the common ground for which we will stand. And we're going to talk about that common ground in just a little bit. But as I think about who we are as the Northwest, as I think about are we a family or are we just friends? As we try to answer the question, what does it mean to come into covenant relationship? I promise to find identity together around these basic principles these four priorities. As we do so, we find ourselves in this very awkward position. And that is that we've got to do two things. We've got to protect the identity. But we've got to be very careful that we don't fall into protectionalism. We did that once. We started to try to protect the gospel from liberalism. And what it did was it drew us into our churches in such a way that we let go of our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And there, 50 years ago, we all know, parachurch organizations popped up like crazy. Every major national parachurch organization that we know of began at that time when the church went into protectionalism. We must proclaim the gospel. So how do we have a good defense? How do we protect our identity, our doctrine, our polity, our missionally driven philosophy And how do we stay in covenant relationship? The best defense is a good... You got it. We must attack the gates of hell. We must claim ground for Jesus Christ. When we began 50 years ago, we had 1,140 churches in America. 50 years later, we have 1,200. Ladies and gentlemen, if that's a movement, then it's calculated by glacial speed. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not believe that that is acceptable reproduction for a family whose head is Jesus Christ. We must reproduce, and we will not reproduce until we are healthy. 
It took Janelle and I a surgery to get healthy enough to be able to reproduce. I don't know what it's going to take for us, but we must get healthy so that we can reproduce. As I think about that, if we in church now are going to pass anything on to church next, it will only come because we have found our identity, we have protected our identity by proclaiming the gospel through the movement of multiplication, a movement of reproduction, churches reproducing churches, pastors reproducing pastors, elders reproducing elders, and churches sending their best. We pass the baton from church now to church next. And I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to pass the baton from my responsibilities in church now to Luke's responsibilities in church next. If nothing else, you've learned how to sit very well over this <laughs> conference time. I understand that. And if you need to stretch, please, you won't uh, disrupt me. I choose to make these words as brief as I can and refer to something that I said in the uh, earlier uh, opening session and referenced a scripture passage from Ezra, and I'll take a look at that just briefly. As I look at the passing of the baton from now to next, am I the right representative? 45 years old, uh, I find myself squarely in church now. I have two sons. The family metaphor runs strong for me as well. I can see the picture. Uh, two sons that are both, uh, one in ministry and one preparing for ministry. And the conversations around the dinner table are truly uh, inspiring. As we would talk about ministry, I have sons that say, you know, Dad, uh, I don't think I'd do it that way. They're effective ministers. They will be effective ministers, and they're not going to do it the way that I have chosen to do it. Having the necessary foundation is absolutely the highest priority. And then the freedom to build the structure is okay. You know, it reminds me of an illustration taken from one of Ravi Zacharias's books when he was kind of uh, in the debate on this whole idea of postmodernism and deconstructionism and, and the whole idea that there are the, the foundations of truth were changing and truth was relative. And, of course, Ravi um, argues that very articulately. And in this particular argument, somebody had taken him to the first deconstructionist, architecturally designed building on a university campus. Now, deconstructionism is just that term that's used to say we're taking apart all of the known structures of knowledge and stability and saying none of that matters and none of that's led us anywhere uh, productive. God is dead. Science does not reign. We're just kind of in the morass here. The first deconstructionist architects that designed a building on the college campus of Ohio State University was a performing arts center. And they took Ravi to it and they said, Ravi, we just want you to know, what's your reaction? And as he walked up, there were stairways that led nowhere. Uh, there were angles to the building that were askew, pods hanging from the ceiling. Everything was tilted and, 
and it just gave you a sense of vertigo, just kind of, and they were looking for his response. Ravi, Ravi, what do you think? Thinking that they had stumped him at this point. And he looked at the building and he said, I just have one question. Did the, um, did the builders of this building do the same thing here with the foundation? And at that point, he silenced his critics. And I say to you, by way of illustration, that there's a whole bunch we can do on top to rearrange things. And it might look a little different, but the bottom remains the same. The foundation remains the same. And that is the challenge to now. As it's past the church next, there is tremendous vision for what is to come. And that's what I choose to speak to. We need to be in that position of saying what goes, what stays, what needs to be added. What in our identity is worth keeping? What needs to leave? And what do we need to add? We have seen that independence, that militant autonomy and independence needs to go. That isn't biblical. It isn't found in the Trinity. It isn't found in how God has set up how we are to be related. And it will require us returning to sound doctrine, which is CB heritage. That is ours. And then it's going to require us to take advantage of the resources and the appropriate margin that is in our own association of churches. I want to look backwards just for a second to church now and simply try and frame this in terms of a, a biblical illustration. If you have your Bible, if you could turn with me to Isaiah 39. I promise to be quick. This isn't an exegesis so much as just an illustration from Scripture as it relates to what is before us as an association. The story is pretty simple. Uh, Hezekiah is leading the nation of Israel. He's done a phenomenal job. He's taken down the high places, and as uh, the chief shepherd in the land, he has restored the land to truth. Um, he is, in fact, regarded as uh, perhaps the greatest king since King David. So he enjoys this status, which is right for him, solid. He has done all these wonderful things to put God back in his rightful place. However, there is trouble, and in, in chapter 37 and 38, we see that uh, the enemies of Israel are upon them, and Assyria is amassing an army at the borders, and it's trouble. And Hezekiah turns to Isaiah and says, boy, we need help. We don't know what we're going to do. Now, the issue here was simply that uh, Hezekiah had turned, sort of, to some other peoples outside of Israel, some other nations looking for some support, for some help. It wasn't really a plea or a call to come and help us or any kind of an alignment, but just kind of feelers. And, of course, God would not be happy with that for God is the defender of his nation. Man, Hezekiah hasn't made any arrangements, but he at least kind of probes a little bit, says, can that happen a little bit? But that's not to be the solution. In fact, the solution is that God himself will defend Israel and in one night wipe out 185,000 Assyrians on the border ready to invade. And you could imagine how happy that would make Hezekiah and his rejoicing, and he writes a, a song, and it's just an incredible time for him to, to proclaim the faithfulness of God. And yet, uh, something really tragic is going to happen to Hezekiah. In fact, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah in 38 and says, um, put your house in order, because tomorrow you're going to die. 
It's shocking to Hezekiah. He is ill. He doesn't understand. He weeps. He cries out to the Lord, turns his face to the wall, and asks God, why? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I done what you've asked me to do? Am I not in the prime of my ministry life? And now this is what you're going to do. And the scriptures tell us that the Lord heard his prayer and relented and said, okay, you got 15 years. 15 years from this day forward. Now, that's where we are. Chapter 39, let me read this to you. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all the treasures in his house, the silver, the gold, and the spices, and the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which it was, you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and truth in my days. I find that to be a most interesting response from Hezekiah. In fact, I've looked at that and said, what is it? He just knew that the words were from God, therefore he could assume that they were good. However, there is something deeper here, something else afoot in this statement. Hezekiah, after this great victory, feeling flush with that victory, feels as if he can open up the treasury and his armory and everything to the enemies, the historic enemies of Israel, to look at. Why? Can I put it sort of into our context? In the world of evangelicalism, our desire has been to be embracing, inclusivistic. We have seen our doctrinal statements shrink to minimalistic statements, so as not to offend, but rather to embrace. And on the whole of it, that's not a bad thing. We have seen evangelicalism and see the pressures today to be culturally relevant, to start to get mushy on some of those deep doctrines. And Bruce Ware said, it's coming inside our own camp. We've kind of opened up the storehouses, so to speak. Let me put it in a generational context. Why would Hezekiah want to do that? Because the highest good is peace. Can you see that? Peace. And he declares that this prophecy from Isaiah is good because it will bring peace in his day for 15 years. So can I paraphrase slightly? 
Isaiah, or Hezekiah is saying, hey, don't care what happens. After 15 years, on my watch, we're going to have peace. So let me put that in a now next kind of context. Many of us in our churches seek for peace right now. We have congregations that remember the glory days and lament that we're not there. And a next generation that yearns to take the land. And there is this tension between the two worlds. And we're seeking peace. That's not what we need to be seeking. Our heritage is not wrapped up in a building. And it's not wrapped up in our constitutions. And it's not wrapped up in the methods that we have used, our generations. That's not where our heritage is wrapped up. Mark has said it eloquently. Mary Ellen is a Hafner. Jake and Adam are Hendrixes. What is it that I would want to place in them to carry forward as it relates to our faith? And what can I tell them is okay to release? You don't have to do it that way. It's okay. In this now next construct, what we are simply saying is our churches need that foundation, that identity that is strong, because the next generation needs it. And then we need to release the way we've done things. If the doctrine is pure, if the polity is biblical, if the philosophy is biblical, you can do whatever you want up on top. That isn't the issue. And how you would see fit to reach your culture is okay. We are on firm ground. Now, will it be peaceful? No. It'll be messy. That's the way it works. You've all raised children. You know what it's like. Trip and fall and there are mistakes and there's all kinds of things. We're to embrace that. Dr. Ware said that biblical community is diversity. You can't have community unless you have diversity. If we all look and talk the same, that's affinity. And we do that. I've done it. Can I give you an example? I'm a youth pastor at, at my core. I know what it's like to take a group of young people hungry to know God and build in them a sense of community unto themselves. The high school ministry, the junior high ministry, youth ministry. And they learn how to worship and how to interact with God and learn the deep truths. And they even gain an idea of mission, reaching their campus, going on foreign missions trips. And they become a community unto themselves that look the same with the same passions. Is that the church? Is that the whole church? No, it's not. That same spirituality and driving force that's in young people in a healthy youth ministry needs to be married with a congregation that has walked the road before. We need to share the same foundations and passions. We need to be connected. It is only then that we would experience biblical community. So a look back is simply to say to my generation, we shouldn't seek peace. We should seek truth and set our children free. 
What does that look like? I've often used this passage of scripture, Psalm 127, in the raising of a family. This picture is given to us, this metaphor, and it is given to us in a, in a, in a war metaphor, literally. Psalm 127 says, the last three verses, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Simply put, the next generation are weapons of warfare. That's what God is declaring. And a weapon is only as good as it is true. And if you put it in that arrow picture, arrows must be straight and true. The fletchings must be in order that will guide the arrow to its directed path. And the point, the broadhead, if you will, needs to be honed to razor sharpness, to slice right through the enemy. Church now must be in that place to sharpen and straighten those arrows in our own families, in our own churches. And then we, we must be prepared to launch them. They will not stay. They need to be launched into the heart of the enemy. One day, wouldn't it be grand to see that next generation? You know what? I'm living my dream right now. My sons can stand with me at the city gate and defend the faith. That is living my dream. We defend it differently. I am a modern. I will argue for the rationality of God. I will show you that it's reasonable. I will show you how God is logical and these things you must come to in reasonable fashion. And my son will say, it's well and good, Father. I will show you a God that's real, who interacts daily with me and changes people's lives. Which one of those truths is incorrect? Neither. They're both true. We come at it from different angles. My generation liked that. I liked it. His generation says, I need to see reality. It's messy. It's okay. We stand at the city gate. We defend together. At CB Northwest, that is our vision, to build churches right now that will be able to launch what's coming next. I'm in charge of what's coming next, everything that's coming next. Youth and family, which includes Tadmore. It includes, uh, my responsibilities include church planting, the churches that will come next, Shepherd's Development Group, the pastors that will come next, Language Ministries teamed with Roy Livy. What is coming next? You're saying, how can one guy do all that? One guy can't do all that. It's impossible. I tell Mark every day, this is impossible. You've given me an impossible task. Perhaps a little more money, it wouldn't be so... No, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> It is impossible, but here's what we're saying. We are teaming with our churches, the churches that have margin and who have accomplished ministry that is truly worthy of being reproduced. We're looking at the D. Dukes and the Rick Harples and the Glenn Smalls. We're looking at Bob Singer, who has led churches through the process of coming back to a biblical polity. 
We're looking at people within our own association to team with, to launch these next generation ministries. I know nothing about church planting. That's probably pretty obvious. I bring everybody else up here and let them talk about it. I know nothing, but Mark put me in charge. Isn't that classic? You, Luke, you be in charge of church planting. Uh, Dwayne Shockley had years of experience, and I'm trying to fill his shoes. Okay, well, here's the way we're going to do it. We're going to take our top church planters in the association. Right now, that's three. They are the advisory council. They come together and set the agenda. How? planters will be assessed, how churches that want to plant will be assessed, so that when you're saying, we're thinking about it, we can send a team, a team that can say, okay, have you thought through all these things? When you say, we think we have a planter, how do we know? Send them through an assessment process that our advisory council has put together. They will also be able to facilitate a boot camp for those planters to show them what it's going to take in the first few years of planting a church. They are also responsible for the further equipping and encouragement of our current planters, and then helping us to discern how the resources will be distributed. Camp Tadmore, I'm responsible for Camp Tadmore. You know what, though? There is a team in place that operates that camp daily. Doesn't need me. I'm there to provide some vision and some leadership. But that is a paradigm shift. Camp Tadmore serves the local church. We ask you to bring your students to camp with your counselors so that you can experience the spiritual growth in your own youth groups and ministries. Huge paradigm shift. Tadmore had positioned itself truly as a parachurch ministry with our own counselors and our own mission. If you ask me how many students came to faith last year at Camp Tadmore, I honestly can't tell you because we did not keep track. And you think, oh my gosh, what are you guys doing? We are for the local church. We will present the gospel creatively, accurately, powerfully at camp. And we will say to the counselors that bring their students, it is your responsibility to grow them up in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it is your responsibility to bring that gospel and interact with them. We only get them for one week. We can't even remember their names. There's no way for us to follow up. That's a huge paradigm shift. What's coming next? Men's Roundup meets every year. 1,500 to 2,000 men at Camp Tadmore learning what it means to be a community of men. I have challenged that leadership and they have responded used to be if you were 18 years old and up, you could go to Men's Roundup. And I said to the Men's Roundup leadership team, will you allow for all high schoolers, for our freshman boys to come? They need to know what it's like to be in the company of men. And Men's Roundup said, yes, Luke, we'll do that. They said, that's going to be really messy. And I said, I know. <laughs> I know. It's okay, though. They need the company of men. Boys Roundup, an event for fathers and sons to come together, challenging that leadership team as well and saying, could you extend? Don't make it just simply elementary age boys, but will you extend from first to eighth grade? Then we got them covered. Can they come with you? They said, yes, of course, Luke. That is true and right. Shepherd's Development Group. Churches that see 
men who are called to the pastorate that can be affirmed first, affirmed by the church first, sent to an educational process that will prepare them to be pastors. Not simply, I'm willing, untested, no one really knows who I am, don't know if I have the gifting, but I have the money. Therefore, I'm qualified, at least to go to school. Not going to start there. It will start with the church and its affirmation of a call on someone's life. Entering into an educational process that will specifically train them for the pastorate. As you can see, Church Next is terribly exciting. has a real sense of anticipation. And we must see it birthed out of the foundation of the local church. Living the paradigm is so much harder than speaking it. Mark shudders at the idea that all this is being taped. Is it's all recorded. I shudder too. It's easier to say it than to do it. But we are truly trying to live that. To what end? To see churches that would become training centers for specific ministries that we can bring our pastors to. It's happening. You can go to Jefferson and learn what it means to be an active, um, aggressive, praying church. There are churches, uh, Sitka, Alaska, that hosts our uh, relational eldering retreat. You can bring your whole elder team there to be equipped in what it means to be an elder. We're going to utilize our own recess sources in our churches that have margin. And we are going to watch God reproduce in a healthy way with a solid foundation. So what would I leave you with this morning? Just simply that I could instill in you a desire and no fear for what comes next. The foundation is what we're concerned with. That's what we're concerned with. Don't worry too much about the structure up on top just yet. Embrace what's coming next. Because your heritage isn't found in a building. It's not found in the documents that you might prepare or the strategies that you might have. It is found in the next generation. Living, breathing human beings who will take this when we are dead and gone. And that's my desire. I'll leave you with this last verse. Uh, two years ago, it became my rallying cry. <laughs> Uh, Psalms. It's in the book of Psalms, Psalm 71. Let me leave you with this and hopefully with a challenge. Psalm 71, verse 18, says this, And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare thy strength to this generation. That is my desire, to see our God work powerfully in the years to come, with a group of people identified as the people of God, unashamed, moving forward, proactive, and releasing the next generation to run hard and fast. I pray that that would be our heritage. I long for it. And to that end, we'll serve alongside Mark until God says no more. Thank you.
Some have described it this way. Luke is in charge of church wonder. And Mark is in charge of church bummer. Okay? Next generation. But it gets birthed out of us old folks. We pass on the heritage. What are we going to pass on to the next generation? I want to be as painfully clear as I possibly can so that you walk out of here going, okay, I understand how this works. How are we going to frame this doctrine? We are starting with our trustees looking at the majority report that was produced by the theological task force. And we are looking at those historical Baptist doctrinal uh, uh, documents that go clear back into our Baptist histories, clear back into the 1600s. They are going through those documents and they are identifying what are primary doctrines, what are secondary doctrines. Then we are coming to a point of agreement in unity as to what is our primary list and then we are going to articulate how to say that list correctly. We are going to then look at those primary doctrines and we are going to develop a statement of biblical polity that is foundational. Then we are going to bring a statement of clarity of our philosophy. Our trustee board is then going to recognize what does it mean to constitute covenantal relationship. What are the rights, the privileges, and the responsibilities of entering into the covenantal community called conservative Baptist? Once we have that, we are going on the road to your association. In our church health clinic, we will unfold that to your association and receive your input about that with this rule. You cannot criticize without answer. If you say it's wrong, then you tell us what's right. No longer are we going to entertain criticism without answer. We recognize that we don't get it right all the time. We recognize there are many of you out there who have thought through things that we have not. There is input from our constituency that will help us do it well. But if you just fire at us and give us no answers, then all you do is defeat us. Our trustee board is learning that rule. Go ahead and criticize. Now answer your criticism. Give us the right answer. And oftentimes it's, uh, well, yeah. it's much easier to pick something apart than to make it right. So we are going to lay bare the best of what we can do to you. And we're going to allow you to shoot it. But you had better give us an answer to what it is you're shooting at us then from that associational response to what we do, we're going to tweak it. 
believing that God is going to lead us to the mind of Christ for this association. And we're going to present it to you next year. God willing, I pray, I hope. Oh, Lord, help us at Skamania Lodge at our next retreat. I'm going to ask Eric to, there he is. God, he's good. And this year, we've got the right dates on here. March 7th through the 10th. 2005, Skamania Lodge will be our conference. That conference will focus on the church. It will be about the church. And there we will present that which we have discussed with all of you in our health clinics around the Northwest this year. Now, what does that mean for me as your general director? This is not going to be a pretty year for me. The amount of work that it will take to facilitate this process, I, I can't even uh, really get around yet. What it means to my wife and my children is incredible. My family has a conviction that God has called us to this role of helping to transition this family to that new day that he has in mind that we must discover. You can make my life a lot easier by being helpful and shareful. You will make my life miserable if you start bombing me with every doctrinal problem, everything that I say that you want to try to put it in the worst light instead of the best light. Conservative Baptists have a problem. We have a climate where we distrust leadership. Congregations don't trust elders. Elders don't trust pastors. Churches don't trust association leaders. Association leaders don't trust national leaders. And so therefore, we create a polity to protect us from leaders that we're not sure we can trust. I am not saying blindly trust the leadership of CB Northwest and its trustees, but I am saying trust us with your eyes wide open. Take us with the intent for which we serve. And that is to the glory of God and the furtherance of his church. That's what we live for. And so do you. So let's 
trust one another to get through this. I want to close with an illustration and uh, then I'm going to bring Ben Brown up because this isn't just relevant for the Northwest. We are beginning this process with nine other regions that will then begin to shape potentially the future of what will be CB America and maybe even CB Global. When I was a young pastor, I used to, to have the privilege of going to a camp called Camp Elkanna. At that time, Marcus Carpenter was the, uh, the director of Camp Elkanna, and I saw Marcus running, walking this out. Marcus, are you here somewhere? Would you stand? This is just a dear brother that I had the privilege of serving with it at Camp Elkanna for a number of years. He was a pastor at Cove for a number of years. Welcome, Marcus. It's good to see you again. And Marcus would allow me the privilege of coming to speak to different age groups at Camp Ocana, and I'd often bring my dog. I had a Brittany Spaniel that was given to me by a family in our community uh, when uh, my wife and I helped some of one of their, their children go through a difficult time. They weren't believers. They had a litter of pups, and they thought the best way to say thank you was to give us a pup. Don't recommend that as a thank you card, but I thought to myself, you know what? What happens with this dog is going to have a great impact on my ministry in this community. And so I decided that that dog was going to become the best dog in the world. And so that dog went everywhere with me. Sat under my desk. It was in my pickup truck. When I went calling, there was that dog. Everybody knew where Mark Hafner was in the community by where his dog was. So if the dog was sitting outside of a business, guess what? Mark was inside there. So people would find me by looking for my dog. Well, I would take that dog, and I would take it to Camp Elkanah, and I would have it lay down in the back of the room, and I would begin to talk to young kids about what it means to have freedom in Christ. And in the middle of my talk, I would say, Britt, load up. And that dog would walk down the center aisle of Camp Elkanah's chapel, and it would come, and it would load up on a table right here on the stage. And I'd set a hot dog right down in front of that dog's nose, and I'd continue to talk. And that dog would keep its eyes on me wherever I went. So if I would walk around this way, that dog would literally turn its head so its eyes never left me. And every so often in my talk, I would say, hit it. And that dog would eat that hot dog that fast. And I'd put another hot dog down there, and I'd continue to talk. And I would talk about the fact that this dog knows freedom because this dog knew how to obey its master. It didn't need a leash because it would go and come. It would sit and stay. It would load up at the voice of the master. So I didn't have to worry about it getting run over because if I told it to sit, it would sit. If I told it to come, it would come. And then I would say, hit it, and it would eat another hot dog. 
And these little kids would look at the dog and they would think about the leash. And we would talk about that freedom in Christ is coming under submission to the voice of the master. One time I had a little sixth grader, boy, you know what they are. <laughs> they are terrors. And he was sitting during my talk and he was saying, hit it. Hit it. Hit it. And after doing that about 30 times, the little boy yells out, hit it, you stupid dog. And that dog took its eyes off of me. And it looked over at that little boy. And then it looked back at me. I believe the evil one is going to yell, hit it. Hit it. Hit it, you stupid church. Do not. And I repeat, do not take your eyes off of our Trinitarian God. If we lose sight of him, we will lose it all. Our freedom is found in none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. We must listen and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Do you trust him this morning? Do you trust him with this family of churches? Do you trust him to lead us to identity around doctrine, polity, and philosophy? Do you trust him to bring us into covenantal relationship with privileges, priorities, and responsibilities? Do you trust him to help us have such a solid foundation that we can release and empower the next generation? Do you trust him enough to live in the war and the mess? Even when it means we are going to be counter culture in the bringing of the good news to a lost and a dying world. It's easy to trust when you have no investment. The question isn't what can CB Northwest do for you? Very little. I've already overworked my staff about as much as I'm gonna get out of them. The question is, is what is your responsibility to the family? That's the real question. What is your responsibility to the family? I cannot meet the needs of the family and refuse to try.
but you can if you'll take ownership of one another in covenantal relationship. Capiche? Make sense? I was hoping for just a little better response to the make sense part. I'm going to ask Ben if he would come. And Ben, if you step to the mic here. We start next week together with the other regional executive directors trying to answer some of these questions nationally. Could you help these folks to understand what it is that... Uh, we are going to be uh, doing, and um, and just then, uh, would, uh, Ben, would you pray for CB Northwest that we would be an example to our brothers around the nation, that we would not be a pain in their tail, but that we would be a blessing to a process of trying to find the mind of God, not only here in the Northwest, but what is it that he would have for us in the future as it relates to the nation? I had a dog too. His name wasn't uh, Brett, but it was Joey. And when I was about 15 years old, I remember going into a Safeway store just before I left on a weekend with Boy Scouts outing. And Joey was that dog, just like Mark's dog, if the dog was there, Ben was there. If Ben was there, the dog was there. You knew where they were. I came back on Monday, actually, on a three-day weekend, and my dog was gone. And I was crushed. And I asked my parents, I asked my sister, I asked all my friends, have you seen Joey? And finally, I started retracing. Where was the last place I saw him? Well, at Safeway, just before I headed out on the trip. So I went back to Safeway, and there were two doors. I went to the door first that I went out of, and I looked around the corner, and at the door that I'd gone in to the store in the previous Friday, Joey was sitting there, not laying down, sitting, and every time those automatic doors opened, he went. And so, not to discourage him too much, I walked in the door I went out and came out the door I went in, and he jumped up and he was so happy. In a dog's life, he had sat there for 21 days. <laughs> I felt so bad. How long has the head of the church been sitting waiting for us to figure it out? In Exodus 15, there's a passage, you know it. It comes in a, in a really trying time for leadership. Moses has led the people out. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've come to the, the stone and gotten water. They've, they've come to the, the place of Marah, the, the pond, and tossed a log in and made it sweet and, and palatable for drinking. And, and all these miracles have occurred in their own sight. And yet the people, maybe two million strong, come to a time of grumbling. Can you imagine what Mark felt like, Moses felt like at that time? 
Well, God came to Moses and he said to that uh, generation now pastor, here's what I'm going to do. Go and give these instructions to the people. But something very interesting happens that God didn't tell Moses to do, and that is that Moses went to generation next pastor, Luke, Aaron, and said, here's what God's told me. Let's go tell the people. And they went and told the people. Because, see, God always has had it figured out. He's always had his way. He has always expressed headship. And as they started to speak, the backdrop behind the leaders, as they were telling the people God's direction and word, glowed with the glory of God. Now, we haven't had that here in these last three or four days. But even with that backdrop, wouldn't you love to have that this Sunday morning? Wouldn't you expect great things to come out of a sermon that had that kind of Shekinah glory behind it, glowing? When you're speaking exactly the words that God has given you, and your staff is alongside you in that? Even the next morning, remember, after the instructions were given, and the people had complained that they'd brought them out in the wilderness to starve them to death, that it'd be better to be back by the pots of meat in Egypt? The people still went out with the instructions, with the glory of God behind, and they said, remember what they said? Three words. What is it? I trust as we walk away from here, we won't be saying, what is it? But we still have some work to do. We still have to make certain that we're under the head of Jesus Christ. My journey started about seven and a half years ago, and it was one where I was working at BBC and, and just loving the ministry and just eating it up, and all of a sudden it just hit me that maybe like some of you, that I've sat back and let others do. I benefited from it, but I've not also given and so I started to try and create some margin. I didn't know it was going to last for seven and a half years. I was just trying to kind of pay you back and, and do my dues. But as I stand here today and I look out at those who serve as shepherds under the headship of Christ, it makes it all worth it. It's not been easy. Next week we come together as regions and regional executive directors in what the board of CBA has given the entitlement of transitional leadership team. It includes the Reds. Steve Labar is the lead person. He's our Southwest Red. And then I'm there to assist in the process. The goal is to do regionally what we were not able to do agency-wide. And that's a big task. We're not there yet. The Northwest is way out ahead of us, frankly. Praise God. Mark, Luke, and the Northwest leadership team took the last two years worth of work while the work was going on and said, we are going to benefit from this regardless of what happens with others. And you've seen that delivered during this period of time. Does God have it all figured out? Does he have it all woven together? He does. Do you remember... I know I'm doing more. Do you remember last year, last night, at another location, in this group? We found out that the war had just been announced. 
we've heard Luke talk about engaging the battle. And one of the things that was there is not only some of you that had those that were close to you that either were there to serve or were going to serve, but we had, we had Janelle and Mark's son, Chris Christopher, and we prayed. And I remember giving Mark a token saying I would pray on a daily basis, and I did. But does God have it all figured out? I went back home, and uh, we had 37 people in our church that were either in Kuwait or Iraq the next number of days, young soldiers. And I emailed one of them, Rebecca Robinson, 19 years old, M60 machine gun security person, and I said, where you are, I don't know if Christopher is going to come through the gate sometime or not, but you keep an eye open for this guy named Hafner. My email back was, he's in my group. Does God have it all figured out? And so Christopher, as he's going through the struggles, and Rebecca, as she's going through the struggles, and what we committed to do here and to pray, they're, they're right over there supporting each other. God has it all figured out. Next week, we just need to make sure that we listen to his headship. And we need your prayers because we need to finish figuring it out the way he has it already figured out. You have in front of you uh, Pastor to Pastor. It's entitled, um, Don't Register for the NSR National Spiritual Retreat Just Yet. This is scary. When I sent this back to the Denver staff, they went, man, we can't print that. We need the registrations right now. And I said, I don't want to, and I know Mark doesn't want to. We've, we've been crystal on this together. We don't want to invite you to the National Spiritual Retreat unless we have something to invite you to, God's thing. And so next week, we need to come out that door where Christ is sitting, knowing that we have a message. And if we do, we're going to come to you and we're going to say, please come, because we have a template. We need your input. We need to be on our, on our knees together, especially in the next year, as we continue to figure out what he already has figured out. And if we don't, frankly, for my vote, we'll cancel the thing and pay the $65,000 fee to the hotel not to be there if there's no reason to be there. That's how we're approaching it this year. It's either going to be God's way, and that's going to be different, or it's going to be no way, and that's okay, because that'll still be God's way. So that's our commitment to you. We're still working. Um, yesterday, Mark said, and I say it too, that in the question and answer time, that we're sorry. We've been through a two-year process that's been incredibly tough. Mark said it's been the two years that's been hardest in his life in ministry, and, and I can certainly reflect that as well. But there's, there are great things happening. Just think of this week. And there are great things that a great God is going to continue to do because he does have it figured out for us. And he does want us to be a family. I just can't commend Mark and his staff enough and for you and your followership, for the board of the Northwest for grappling with what the organizational task force grappled with and taking it to the next steps, for taking the documents out of the organizational task force and studying them and saying, what can we take from this process? 
from the doctrinal task force studying those documents and saying, can we go with the majority report or the minority report and let's look at it from a historic standpoint and let's put something solid together so that we can exercise through that clarity at the local church level because we're here to serve the church. I'd like to invite um, the Northwest staff forward, Janelle, Mark, Ellie, if you're around, Luke, just come on up on the platform if you would and just stand with me because I get to have the great privilege today of just closing in prayer and just asking for God's blessing as he continues to lead here. Janet, David, please. Linda, spouses that are here. Nancy, Eric, we're going to drag you out from behind there. Stephen. Another, another David, Jennifer. And can I ask you right where you are that, that in this time as we kind of close this time but also project to what God has for us, I think we think, see things much clearer and we want it to become crystal. That we just commit ourselves to pray. I know you do, but in a new way to pray for the Northwest leadership and to pray for next week for the transitional leadership as it comes together. And can I ask you either to stand or to kneel? It's your choice. Up here, why don't we put our hands together? Father, we would be remiss not to end this time by, again, just acknowledging you, our Father. Thank you for the clarity through your servant, Dr. Bruce Weir, this week, and for the pattern that we see in the Godhead, for the structure of incredible authority but phenomenal familiarity and cooperation. And Father, we are the standing and kneeling bride of Christ in the CB movement that we desire and you desire and long for in the Northwest. Father, I humbly ask you through your complete and total economic workings of your Trinity and Godhead that you would bless every person in this room for the ministry that you already have figured out for them. And that, Father, you would give us to your honor and glory, not to man's, such an incredible unity that the world will see and therefore believe. But that, Father, also our hearts might see maybe for the first time in a generation, that unity that only you can bring in our love for each other and support for one another. Father, be with Mark, Luke, David, and others on this staff. Thank you for them. Thank you for their boldness to be truthful with us and honest with you. And to see that you desire to take no prisoners as you proclaim yourself and as you build your kingdom for your return.
We love you. Answer our prayers in Jesus' name and to his glory and honor. Amen. We want to thank you for coming. We just want to remind you as you go out the door, if you would put your surveys into the baskets, if you have a gift for the Reach Out Fund, uh, please feel free to put that in the baskets. Remember, your checkout is at 12 o'clock. And again, thank you for investing your time here this week.